My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team at Oasis Church, and it's really good to be with you today. Uh, please keep your Bibles open there to Acts. Uh, Acts. We've finished Acts, aren't we? First Kings chapter 12. Uh, if you're still trying to find First Kings in your Bible, let me give you a hint. It comes right before Second Kings. You are welcome. Now let me begin by asking you, what are some of the most famous splits in history? What are some of the most famous uh, breakdowns or divisions? Maybe you immediately think of some celebrity couples, and I'm not going to run through a list of them. Uh, maybe you're more scientifically minded and you think of the atom, which was successfully split in 1932. I think of these guys, the Fab Four, the Beatles. After uh, many years of acrimony, they officially split in 1974. Diana and Charles also come to mind, as does Germany, which was divided by the Berlin Wall for almost 30 years. Speaking of Germany and, and famous splits, uh, these two German brothers also come to mind. Adi and Rudi Dassler. Now, you may not have heard of Adi and Rudi, but I guarantee you've heard of the companies they started. It all began in 1919 when these two brothers started a shoe manufacturing company called Gita. For 30 years, they worked alongside one another, and their company became very successful. Jesse Owens even wore their shoes at the 1936 Olympics when he won a stack of gold medals. But in 1948, the, the brothers and their wives had a falling out, and they went their separate ways. And in the next couple of years, both men started their own separate shoe companies in the same town, their hometown. Now, this town was divided by a river, so uh, Rudy built his factory on the northern side of the river, and Adi built his factory on the southern side of the river. Employees at these two factories did not mix with one another. They went to separate bars and bakeries and barber shops. The two football teams in this town were sponsored by the two companies. In fact, this town developed a nickname. It was called the town of Bent Necks. Because if you went to this town, the people had the strange habit of looking at your shoes when they met you to see which company you belonged to. Now, what were the names of the, the two companies that these men started? Well, Rudy, uh, first of all, called his company Ruder, but later, you know, it doesn't sound very athletic, and so later he changed it to Puma. Adi Dassler combined his two names and he called his company Adidas. These two brothers, the, the split between them not only split a family, not only split a town, but it actually led to two of the world's biggest shoe companies. Now, the reason I share this with you is because today, in our passage from the Bible, we come to one of the most famous divisions, most well-known splits in Scripture. It's not a celebrity divorce or a feud between brothers. It's the division of the nation of Israel. It's the split of David's kingdom. 
Now, you might remember that this time last year, we spent seven weeks working our way through the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, this book in the Old Testament. We called the series The Rise and Fall of Solomon. Well, today, we're going to pick up the story again, and we're going to work through the the second half of 1 Kings, chapters 12 to 22. And we've called this series The Life and Times of Elijah. Now, Elijah's not going to show up for a couple of weeks. We'll, We'll meet him a little bit further down the track. But these first few chapters set the scene for Elijah's ministry. They show us why Elijah the prophet was so necessary. Now, it might be helpful for us to get our bearings. I mean, what is First Kings all about? Well, funnily enough, it is about kings. It's about the decline of God's kings and the division of God's kingdom. Now, how do we get to this point that we're at today, this division of the kingdom? Well, after the death of King David, Israel's greatest king, Solomon, his son, took over the throne. And you might remember from last year that Solomon started really well. Remember, he asked God for wisdom above all else. And he was a wise king. He was a godly king. And God blessed him greatly. I mean, this really, uh, under the reign of Solomon, is the high point in the story of Israel, God's people. They are living in God's place under God's rule, and they're experiencing God's blessing. I mean, they are as wealthy as they ever will be. They are protected from their enemies. Life was sweet under King Solomon. But like many things in life, the good times do not last. And Solomon's heart is turned away from the Lord. He's led into idolatry by his foreign wives. And yes, I said wives, plural. Solomon had 700 of them. And so Solomon's idolatry leads him to disaster. God actually uh, promises in 1 Kings chapter 11 to tear the kingdom apart, to divide the nation of Israel. Now, he says he won't do it during Solomon's lifetime, but he will do it during the reign of Solomon's son. And this is where we find ourselves today in chapter 12, the division of the kingdom. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, you know, this is great. This sounds interesting. Sounds like a a good plot for a Netflix series. But what does it have to do with me? What relevance does it have for my life, apart from maybe helping me to win Bible trivia. Well, the Bible is one unified story that leads to Jesus. The Bible is not this random collection of stories with a moral lesson attached to them. The Bible is one big story that leads us to Jesus. And if we want to understand this story, we need to understand the different events that take place. Events like the division of the kingdom. This is a significant event in the storyline of the Bible. Three books in the Old Testament are devoted to this event. Almost all of the prophets in the Old Testament, you know those shorter books with funny-sounding names? Almost all of the prophets in the Old Testament are speaking to God's people in the wake of this event, this division. This is a significant event. And it has important lessons for you and I in our lives today. Did you know the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, which is a New Testament letter, he's writing to to New Testament believers, and he says this. He says, for whatever was written in the past, and maybe you might think he's saying, for whatever was written in the past is irrelevant. 
We can move on from it. It's not what he says. He says, for whatever was written in the past, in the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. He's talking to New Testament believers. The Old Testament is for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. The book of 1 Kings, like the rest of the Old Testament, is written to give us instruction and encouragement and hope. And so I firmly believe that God is going to speak to us powerfully through his word over the next seven weeks. So hopefully, by now, you've found 1 Kings. Uh, If you have your Bible there, you've got it open to chapter 12. Hopefully, you've grabbed a a life group guide as well. This is going to help you as we make our way through this series. And we're going to begin today by looking at chapter 12 under two headings. Number one, the stupidity of Rehoboam and the sovereignty of God. And number two, the sinfulness of Jeroboam and the salvation of God. Stupidity and sovereignty sinfulness and salvation. Let's begin, number one, with the stupidity of Rehoboam and the sovereignty of God. Now, chapter 12 begins by introducing us to this man named Rehoboam. Now, uh, Rehoboam was the son of King Solomon. And after Solomon dies at the end of chapter 11, Rehoboam is made king at the beginning of chapter 12. And the chapter begins with him kind of establishing his rule. He travels north to the city of Shechem to kind of uh, attend his coronation. Now, why does he go to Shechem? Why does he travel to the north? Perhaps it's because he heard that there were some rumblings, and he goes there to establish his rule. You see, the northern tribes of Israel, they had a request for King Rehoboam. They wanted him to lighten their load. You know, while Solomon was king, he accomplished some amazing things for God's people. He built the temple, which was just this amazing structure devoted to worship of God. He expanded their borders. He protected them and defeated their enemies. Solomon accomplished these amazing things, but he did it on the backs of his people. He taxed them very heavily. He worked them like slaves. And now that Solomon is dead, God's people see the opportunity for relief. And so they ask this new king to take it easier on them. Now, they send a man named Jeroboam to make this request. They send Jeroboam to Rehoboam. Uh, Aboam must have been, you know, the the in thing to call your your boys back in that day. Now, we'll talk about Jeroboam in, in just a moment. But what you need to know about him is that he had been living in Egypt in exile. He had run away from King Solomon who wanted to kill him. You see, earlier in chapter 11, when God made the promise uh, that he was going to divide the kingdom, he actually said to this man, Jeroboam, I'm going to give you 10 of the tribes of Israel. Look at what he says in in chapter 11, God talking to Jeroboam. He says, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand because of his idolatry and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. So so Jeroboam's going to have 10 tribes and and Solomon's son is just going to have one. Now when Solomon hears about this, he's not too keen on the idea and he thinks the way to stop it is to kill Jeroboam. So Jeroboam flees to Egypt, but now that Solomon is dead, Jeroboam is back and he's the spokesperson for the oppressed people of God. Now, before we look at what happens, I just want you to notice one of the subtle things that's happening here. 
What is happening here is that this is an inverse, reverse exodus. Do you remember what happened in the exodus earlier in the Bible? God sent a deliverer to Egypt to rescue his people from slavery to a foreign king. Now, we have a deliverer coming out of Egypt to rescue God's people from slavery under their own king. It's a sign that not all has gone well. Not all is well in the people of God. Look what happens. Jeroboam goes to to Rehoboam on behalf of the people and says, verse 4, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. That's a reasonable request, and Rehoboam seems to respond reasonably. He asks for some more time to ask for advice. And the first group that he goes to to ask for advice is the older men, the men who had advised his father Solomon. And their advice to Rehoboam is to say yes. They basically say to him, Rehoboam, if you say yes to the people today, if you grant them this request, they will be loyal to you. They will serve you all of their days. Makes sense. What happened? Look at verse 8. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. Uh Uh-oh. Rehoboam ignores the older, wiser men and he turns to his mates, his boys, his royal frat pack. Verse 9, he asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer the people? Notice the language, we. Look who he's identifying with. It's pretty clear who he is going to listen to. And what do these young thugs advise? Well, they don't advise sacrificial service. They suggest a show of strength. They advise some good old-fashioned intimidation. Look, Look at verse 10. The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Sounds painful. Now, the phrase, my little finger, is thicker than my father's waist, it is... Uh, a polite translation. Most commentators agree this is not referring to a finger, that these young men had a different appendage in mind. The things you learn at church. (laughs) Now, the point is this. This is foolish advice. These are fools. And Rehoboam listens to them. He stupidly listens to his stupid friends. And the result is disastrous. Rehoboam essentially goes and says to the people, you thought life was hard under my dad. You ain't seen nothing yet. And the people respond, if that's the case, then you ain't our king. And this right here is the moment that the kingdom is split. Ten tribes in the north, collectively known as Israel, ruled by Jeroboam, Two tribes in the south, collectively known as Judah, ruled by Rehoboam, who has acted stupidly. 
Now, sadly, Rehoboam's stupidity does not end there. He goes on to do more stupid things, which you can read about in verses 18 to 24. But I want to pause here for the moment to ask the question, why was the kingdom divided? What was the reason that it split? Now, you might think the answer is obvious. The reason that it split was because of the stupidity of Rehoboam. If he had have just listened to the advice of the elders, this whole disaster could have been avoided. Instead, he listened to his foolish friends. You know, it's tempting to, to, to moralize this story, to turn it into a lesson about the, the perils of peer pressure or, or the danger of not listening to those who are older and wiser than us. And that is a danger. I mean, we should listen to those who are older and wiser than us. If you're a teenager, that is a good thing to do. The book of Proverbs is filled with advice about listening to those who are older and wiser than you. But that's not the point of this story. That's not the the reason the kingdom split. How do we know? Well, we're told in verse 15. It says there, So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord, to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam. Remember the promise that God made to Jeroboam that I will tear the kingdom apart, I will give ten tribes to you and one tribe to Solomon's son? This is exactly what happens in chapter 12. The word of God is fulfilled. You know, this is not mainly a story about a stupid king. This is mainly a story about a sovereign God. The God who rules over everything and everyone, even human stupidity and foolishness. In fact, God uses the stupidity of Rehoboam for his purposes and his ends. And and this is incredibly comforting for us as believers in this sovereign God. Here's the way a commentator named Dale Ralph Davis puts it. I love this. He says, contrary to our fears, human stupidity is not running loose, but is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Human stupidity is not running loose, but is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Now, does this mean that God forces us into certain decisions? Did God force Rehoboam to make these stupid decisions? Of course, the answer is no. There's there's nothing mechanical here. God didn't force Rehoboam to do anything. God didn't violate Rehoboam's will. He made his own stupid decisions. Just like you and I make our own stupid decisions. And yet God used Rehoboam's stupid decisions. So that verse 15 says, this turn of events was from the Lord. D.A. Carson, a world-renowned Bible scholar, he says, human beings, listen to this, human beings have the freedom to be obedient or disobedient, to act wisely or foolishly. But this freedom is contained within God's sovereignty. And this is the teaching of the Bible. God is 100% in control of all things. All things happen according to his divine plan. But we are also 100% responsible for our choices. That our choices genuinely matter and they genuinely make a difference. Now, do you want to know where you see this most vividly? It's at the cross of the Lord Jesus. You know, Peter, the Apostle Peter, is giving a sermon to the Israelites in Acts 2. 
And he, he says to them about Jesus. He says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, he says, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Now, what could be more sinful, more wrong, more evil than to kill the Son of God? Does a greater evil exist? And yet we're told here in Acts 2 that this was God's deliberate plan. That God used the actions of evil people to pay the penalty of our evil once and for all. Human stupidity is not running loose, but is on the leash of God's sovereignty. Now listen carefully. This isn't permission to be stupid. Or sinful. Or foolish. Do whatever you want. Live however you choose. God will work it all out in the end. Think about Judas. Handed over Jesus for, for a bunch of silver coins. Was used in the part of the process of, of Jesus' death. And yet is held responsible for his actions and his choices. Just because God uses our sin doesn't excuse our sin. Just because God uses our foolishness doesn't excuse our foolish choices. This isn't permission to be stupid or sinful or foolish. But it is an encouragement to keep going even in the face of your sin. It is an encouragement to keep turning to God even in the face of your stupid decisions. I mean, like me, you probably have those moments, usually when you're lying in bed at the end of a long day, and you go over in your mind all of the stupid, sinful things you said and did. The, the, the times you, you grieved the Holy Spirit, the times you spoke harshly, acted impulsively, lived selfishly. And you think to yourself, you fool. The bad news is that you are a fool. I am a fool. But the good news is that if we are in Christ, we're God's fool. We belong to him. He's taken hold of us, and he, by his Holy Spirit, through his word, is at work to change us. To make us less foolish and more wise, more loving and less selfish. And if you keep trusting Christ to the very end, your foolishness won't have the final say in your life. God will have the final say in your life. And this is what we see in the example of Rehoboam. We see the stupidity of Rehoboam and the sovereignty of God. This is the first lesson. It leads us to the, the second half of the chapter, that the focus shifts from Rehoboam in the south to Jeroboam in the north. This point will be a lot shorter than our first. And it's this. It's the sinfulness of Jeroboam and the salvation of God. Now, after this chain of events, Jeroboam is now the king of the northern kingdom. He's reigning and ruling over the ten tribes in the north. And the question is, what kind of king is he going to be? And the answer, sadly, is not great. Not great at all. 
You see, the first thing he does is he shores up his defenses. He fortifies a couple of key cities. And this is not wrong in and of itself, but it reveals something about Jeroboam's heart and life. It reveals a lack of trust in God that we will see played out in tragic ways. Begins right away, verse 26. Look at what we see there. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, now uh, Jerusalem is in the south, but you always go up to Jerusalem. The temple, the presence of God, you're always going up to the presence of God. And so they say when they go to Jerusalem, to the temple, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. Now, what was Jeroboam so worried about? Losing his kingdom, losing his position as king. He's worried that as, when people go to the temple, which was in the south in Jerusalem, which is where Rehoboam was king, they're going to be reminded of what they're missing out on. This temple, which is so magnificent. Rehoboam, who's the grandson of great King David. And he's worried that they're going to return back to Rehoboam. Now, at one level, this is understandable. It might happen. But at another level, Jeroboam should have known better. Jeroboam forgot that God had made him king. That God had promised to establish him as king. In fact, God had said earlier to Jeroboam in chapter 11, uh, let let me read it for you. It's so helpful to, to understand what's going wrong here for Jeroboam. God had said to him, if you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, God says to Jeroboam, I will be with you. I will build you, listen to this, a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. God had given Jeroboam his word. He'd made his promise to him. But it seems for Jeroboam that God's word was not enough. And so he takes matters into his own hands. Look at verse 28. After seeking advice... You know, advice has not gone well in this chapter so far, and it's about to get worse. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. And we read this, well, uh-oh, seen this before. And we have, remember the Exodus, Aaron built the golden calf for the people to worship, and it led to God's fearsome judgment. Makes two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. Instead of trusting in God's promises, Jeroboam has become anxious in his heart. He takes matters into his own hands. He tries to make himself secure, and he falls into terrible idolatry. He actually ends up inventing a false religion. He becomes a cult leader. I mean, God had given guidelines for how he was to be worshipped. Jeroboam just throws him out the window. Jeroboam says, you know, he makes anyone a priest. He sets up you know, altars not where God had told him to. He even changes the days of the feasts and the festivals. He just makes it all up. And it's easy for us to look down on Jeroboam to imagine, well, I would never do that. But what led Jeroboam down this path of idolatry? What led him to kind of make up this religion? 
It was his failure to trust God. He thought to himself, I don't know if God is going to come through for me. I don't know if God is going to be true to his word, and so I need to take matters into my own hands. In other words, he did not look to God for his security. He made security his God. And let's be honest. Let me be honest with you. I'm prone to this same sin. I imagine some of you are as well. What does it look like? Well, it might mean that we're we're not generous. We, we, We hoard money to make ourselves feel safe. Or we anxiously try to control every aspect of our children's lives. Or we put our hope in politics and politicians to secure our vision of the future. Or we stay in our comfortable job, even though we know God has called us into something else. Maybe ministry, maybe mission work, whatever it might be. Or we date or marry someone, even though they're not a believer. I mean, on and on we could go. And listen up. It's not easy. In fact, maybe like me, you need to sing uh, the line from the hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus," which simply says, "Oh, for grace to trust Him more." How do we do this? How do we trust God more? Well, we need to look back at what God has promised to us, don't we? That's why we've got to be spending time in God's word, to be discipled by, reminded of God's promises to us. But we also need to to look ahead at what God has in store for us. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the most rapturous delight you have ever had in the beauty of a landscape or in the fulfillment of a loving embrace are like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it will be to see God face to face. Don't sell out for less, as there is more than you can imagine. This is the, 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 the warning of this story. Don't sell out for less, because nothing compares to God. And the good news of Christianity is that nothing is stopping you from coming to God. Even in the rubble of this sad split, there is a glimmer of hope. You know, there's a number of times in this passage where, where there are repeated references to David and to the house of David. And this is significant because God had made a significant promise to David. God had said to David earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he said, there is going to be a king that will come from your line, David, and he will reign forever. He will reign over everything and everyone. He will be the answer to everything. And of course, we can trace this promise and we know that this promised king is the Lord Jesus. And we know that Jesus came to rescue sinners and fools like us, like me, That on the cross, Jesus was torn apart so we could be brought back together. That on the cross, Jesus was cut off from his father's face so that we could be brought near to his heart. So that we could be adopted into his family. So that we could have a secure future. And So maybe today as you think about your life, you're grieved by some of the, the stupid, foolish decisions you've made. 
maybe you're grieved by your own sinfulness and idolatry. Whatever the case may be, the solution is the same. To turn to Christ. To trust him, the one who came for us, the one who died for us, the one who rose for us, the one who reigns for us, and the one who is coming again for us. To bring us into his glorious kingdom where there'll be no more sin or stupidity or division ever again. And that's a promise you can trust. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but you have come to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. The only wise and good and gracious King, the friend of sinners. And so help us, Lord, to, to trust him, to stay near to him, to lean on him, Lord, where we have turned from you to trust in other things, this morning bring us back. Help us to see your goodness and your glory and your sovereignty afresh. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on that glorious future you have promised to those who love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.